for me, as I looked into more of how amazing, how amazing Mother Nature is and how amazing the world that we have is and how resilient it is at repairing itself, it really gave me a sort of a new a glimpse of hope on, you know, being able to actually do something positive. And I think for me, even though I'm a technologist at heart, I'm somebody who probably favors technology over everything else. In this instance, I favor protecting the natural world because I think that that's the only ju- the only way that we can make a difference. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. It is so well hidden by all the negative noise in the news media and social media, etc. that I'm calling this wave a conspiracy of goodness. Yes, it is still an amazing world. And on this podcast, you're going to hear from the people making it that way. So welcome. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Mothership website of this podcast, and it's called The Goodness Exchange. There you can find instant access to good news, insight, and innovation going uncelebrated, and you can skip all the doom and gloom and get right to things that make you think more positively about the world and have ideas about how your own life could work better. The people that we're talking to on this podcast and whose work we're celebrating in our written articles think the world is still bright. Every day they put one foot in front of the other to make the world a little better place. And I really think that we need to know what they know. We need to know how they get around obstacles and how they find opportunity and problems. And then you and I can find our own unique ways to contribute to a better future. So today we're going to get right to it. We have an amazing guest. Burhan Yassim is the CEO of of an amazing nonprofit called the Rainforest Connection. And we at the Goodness Exchange have written about the Rainforest Connection almost since their inception, 2015, 2017, and 2019. And so I feel absolutely as privileged as I could be to talk to Borhan about this amazing organization and the way he is is using his unique talents and experiences to further the impact of this great this great organization that's changing the future for us all. So welcome, Borhan. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me. Really excited to get to talk to you. And, you know, we're really appreciative, you know, the three times or so that you guys talked about us before. So we're really excited to be here. Well, I want to share with people right off why your work is so unusual and why it why it attracted us right from the our first understanding of how important it was. I'm going to let Borhan give me the actual founder story because there's an amazing sure. man named Topher, Topher White at the beginning of this who I've met and had right. a beer with and who we've, who we've, we at the Goodness Exchange sort of hold up as an example of how innovation happens. So I think, ooh, I just got goosebumps a little bit. Borhan, tell us the founder story so people can appreciate how this might work in their own lives or how they are uniquely built to contribute something. Yeah, no, definitely. So Rainforest Connection, just to kind of give a, a bit of a an introduction about Rainforest Connection, we're a nonprofit organization that focuses essentially on forest protection. So whether it's conserving biodiversity and the species that, that inhabit a, a forest or stopping illegal activity from encroaching on forests, 
that's our primary focus. So the whole thing kind of started out with a, a volunteer mission that our founder in 2014, Topher, volunteered at a Gibbons Reserve in Indonesia. And it was just a, you know, he's a physicist from the Bay Area and wanted to do something good. So volunteered for, for that Gibbons Reserve. And the interesting thing about it was, uh, you know, instead of spending most of their efforts protecting these gibbons, which is a wonderful animal, uh, by the way, wonderful species, instead of spending all their time protecting gibbons, they were spending most of their time defending the reserve from illegal loggers. So Topher had saw that and basically thought, you know, hey, I think we can use some technology here to try to help them out. So we really started out from very sort of rudimentary technology application methods where we basically started using a recycled cell phone that we would essentially get from all these people from around the world that would donate it to us and would put a bunch of custom software on that cell phone and use it to record uh, the sounds. And that allows us to detect just very specific signatures in the sound, like uh, a chainsaw going off in the distance. That's, you know, ever since then, we've been sort of iterating on this technology, adding the more sophisticated ways of being able to detect any any signs of illegal activities. And that's where we are today. So yeah, it was it's sort of an interesting kind of, we stumbled upon this, you know, this sort of need that was right there on the ground where people were really struggling to to do the work that they wanted to do, which is protect these gibbons. And being able to add a technology solution to help them out uh, was was really good. So the next year, Topher went back to that same reserve. And no, I laid- before you go on, yeah, can I just sure. add one little twist to it for the ordinary person in me? Yeah, yeah. So what fascinated me about that story you just told was, I believe there's a video of it, this idea about about using sound to detect activities was kind of the outcome of a, of a certain day when all the staff on, in the reserve were kind of their interest peaked and they all started running in a direction and Topher followed them. And sure enough, very close to this actual place where they were working with the Gibbons was where illegal loggers cutting down an enormous tree. And the deal was is that the, the forest is so loud that even that close, they could not hear the chainsaws taken down the street. And yeah. and the thought was, oh, well, you know, where is a techno- technological solution to this? Well, of course, it's right in the palm of our hand with cell phones. The ability to, to train, to tweak cell phones to pick up the frequency of a chainsaw, or then you progress. Yeah, I'm sure you're going to tell the story, which we love too. We have, you eventually progressed to learning that birds made a certain different sound. And you worked with the Depart- Department of Ornithology at Cornell so that you could pick up the sound of the birds that made a different sound when the loggers were approaching rather than waiting for the the uh, chainsaws. And I guess that's my just ordinary take on on how these ideas come to us through some moment, for, through some aha moment, and then they get translated into these beautiful examples of how complex technology can be used to help us in the most important and simple ways. So carry on with the story. This is great. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that animals, and this is why it's so important to protect animals, and hopefully we'll get to a chance to talk about it a little bit more and protect the species that are inhabiting the forest because they're so important and they're so vital to the health of the forest itself. But they're also indicative of lots of things that are going on. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There's lots of species that can indicate danger, that can indicate all sorts of natural events that are happening and all kinds of things like that. So it's quite fascinating to see the amount of 
insights that you can get just by listening to the forest. And sound is so important because it's a way for us to be able to listen and to be able to understand what's going on at a distance. Any other technology is limited sort of by its field of view, so to speak. So if you're if you have a camera that's installed in the forest, you're only as good as whatever the field of view of that camera. And imagine in a forest where everything in front of you is green and everything is vegetations and heavy cover, it makes it very difficult unless an animal walks right in front of a camera, it makes it very difficult to really understand what's going on. They're still great to, to do species protection, but sound is so much more profound and it has this ability to capture so many different things that are happening at the same time. So like if you close your eyes and just listen, you start hearing all kinds of things that are happening around you, behind you, in front of you, on your sides, all those kind of things. So sound is really, really amazing way to understand what's going on in a forest and help protect it, right? So I think that that's why we gravitated toward using sound to do these things. Now, there's a little link just to make it even more clear with folks. So so the original, I'm sure you were going to say that about in year two, but the original way you guys used sound was that you collected the old cell phones. I think Topher told me there was like a 2010 Motorola that he originally liked way back when. And you could disable a lot of the th- functions, but use a little solar panels, put them up in the tops of trees in the rainforest. And then the when the phone detected the frequency of a chainsaw, the sound would go up to a satellite and then down to local folks who's who could rush in and save the day? Is that kind of the general original plan? Yeah, right. In the beginning, yeah. So if you think of a cell phone, cell phones get thrown by the millions, by the hundreds of millions every single year, right? And there are really many computers. There are very powerful many computers that are able to do some really sophisticated analysis and run some pretty high-end computer programs. And yeah, their main function as they were originally designed was to record sound or was to allow you to kind of communicate through sound. So microphones and things like that were very natural to cell phones, right? So yeah, our original plan, you know, like I said, it wasn't, you know, we weren't using high level of sophistication of technology like what we're using today. It was very, very much focused on trying to use whatever is available in front of you. So if you're thinking in a reserve in Indonesia where resources are super limited, and the company was super tiny at that point. It was probably, it was only Topher and, and one more person. Then we're trying to use whatever is available in front of us, kind of to, to try to have a, a solution. And I think that cell phone was a, was a great way because not only gets thrown by the millions, it's also this has this capability. So yeah, we took a cell phone that we would get from all over the world. People would donate cell phones all the time. Actually, when I first when I first joined Rainforest Connection, I was looking at a wall of cell phones. Uh, I remember in our storage that was, you know, donations from all over the place. And we were just opening them up and trying to send people thank you letters and telling them, yeah, you know, this is going here and this is going there. And this is not going to go in a, inside of a guardian, but it's going to go to a ranger that can use to actually get the detection. So it's kind of cool to go through that process. But yeah, so we put a cell phone in, we put it in a box to make it waterproof. We st- you know, put a couple of solar panels on it and a battery and a couple of other things. And we sort of made it resilient to the harshness of the forest is very beautiful, but it's also very harsh to the harshness of the forest. And we would put these things and have them record the sound, 
And then obviously a cell phone is connected to the GSM network, right? It's a main function of it. So after it does the work, it uploads the sound to the cloud using the GSM network. And then once we detect some sort of an anomaly in there, like a chainsaw going off, we would then immediately alert the people on the ground, again, using another cell phone that they could get these detections. So that was really the first time there was a real-time solution to preventing illegal logging, which is a very big problem. We could also talk about that a little bit later, but preventing illegal logging in a real-time way. All the previous methods, and still till the day, lots of the methods rely on sort of data that that is not retrieved until a few weeks later, like, for example, satellite imagery and things of that nature. So really good way to get people to to do something about what's going on in a real-time fashion, which was what was important. And I do I remember some kind of statistic, um, which surprised me. I'm recording this podcast from a really cold place in northern Vermont near Montreal, and we don't have cell phone at this house <laughs> reception very from time to time, yeah. or pretty often, actually. But I, do I remember a statistic where a lot of the remaining patches of rainforest that need protection do have pretty good self, satellite coverage for cell phones? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's sort of a it's sort of a byproduct of the cities that are encroaching on rainforest. It's a sad thing, but at the same time, it's a reality. As cities encroach on rainforests and they get nearer and nearer to rainforest, ultimately these cities get cell phone towers and and so on. So oftentimes you'll go in, you know, to the outskirts of a jungle and you have cell phone signal that you can pick up from a nearby town because these cities are coming closer and closer to, you know, to these rainforests. But the reality of it is, if you wanted to protect any area that you wanted to protect in the rainforest, you know, certainly a cell phone signal, is, it w- wouldn't be everywhere, right? I mean, some of these yeah. hatches of rainforest span across hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of kilometers. And that's why our technology that we use today relies on what's called low earth orbit satellite. So basically, the ability to connect and still broadcast a message of an illegal activity using a satellite service that allows us to basically put the device anywhere in the world. So we've, about a couple of years ago, we've implemented this technology and that's what we're using today to give us, to kind of free us from the limitations of not being able to grab a cell phone signal. And that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of what we're, where we're, what we're doing today. Yeah. Okay, so just some basics. You want to share with us just some basics because I know I know you've really branched out from just protecting the rainforest into some really fascinating areas. And still the whole the whole mission really is about acoustics. It's about the magic of sound and being able to monitor sound so much better than visual cues and, and the in real timeness of sound too. So share with us some of the wonder of what you're doing now. Yeah, so you can kind of call it something like it's basically we sort of stumbled across this capability that we had, we've been doing this whole time that we really weren't taking full advantage of, which is when we were when we were focused entirely on fighting against illegal logging and deforestation and so on. We were in order to do the real-time detections, we were essentially collecting all of the sound from the forest, right? We would record all this audio, we would upload it to the cloud, and we would analyze it for those sounds, those chainsaw sounds or the gunshots or the vehicles and so on. But along with that, we were actually recording the entire soundscape of the forest, right? We were recording everything else that's going on, the whole cacophony of 
sounds and all these beautiful species that are and birds that are singing and all these kind of things. And we weren't really doing anything with it. And, you know, we actually amassed a very large data set of sound that we were just actually using very little of to do the illegal detection. And, you know, we started thinking, well, you know, we should do something about this. We should share it with people. We should go into the field of bioacoustics, which is not a new field by any means, but it's a field that primarily relied on sort of rudimentary methods or essentially just a very brute force way of collecting data and analyzing all of it. So we started looking at using the sound to also understand biodiversity and understand the species that are happening in the forest. And for me personally, having gone to the rainforest and having sort of experienced some of these projects that are happening on the ground to talk to some of the biologists and scientists that spent their whole life studying one species, it really opened my eyes on how important it is to preserve animals. They're not just cute. They're not just fun to look at and fun to observe. They're actually very vital to the sustainability and the health of the forest. And that became sort of the second part of our mission that I spearheaded that I thought was very important for us to not just protect, do the brute force protection of the forest by way of illegal logging and, and deforestation, which was still, of course, very important, but also to be able to protect the health of the forest by making sure that biodiversity stays intact or we rehabilitate a forest through its through various methods. So we ensure that the overall health and kind of sustainability of the forest remains intact. And that was something that now we've developed all kinds of new stuff, all kinds of new technologies to try to accommodate for that. So we're going to get into some of those new technologies. They're fascinating. There's some with whales and some outside the rainforest purview. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about all these cool technologies so we can have a spring in our step. There there are things that are very right with the worlds. And Borhan Yassin is talking to us about the rainforest connection, which is one of those things. So we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to learn more. Hi, Dr. Linda here. Many of you know that the mothership website of this podcast is called The Goodness Exchange. And there you can find articles, a video library, podcasts, and content collections that point to what's right with the world. You can visit every day and you'll find the antidote to all the negative noise out there in the world. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. We can choose what to give our attention to every morning and end our day with something positive. But what about our work environments? We need to feel supported and come alive in those cultures. But that's becoming harder and harder when most of us go to virtual work. And many of us who are working with others still never have shared positive experiences with our colleagues. By definition, culture comes from shared experience. So employees find it harder and harder every day to create an environment that attracts and retains other great people. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange and our extraordinary content, which celebrates an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows enough about yet. My team and I at the Goodness Exchange are making certain that employees of optimistic, values-driven companies have instant access to the positive news out there today, because science is telling us that it's time to start celebrating what's right with the world. 
And here's the thing. There are so many positive stories out there about astounding solutions to some of our world's biggest problems, about wonders and leaps in human potential. But most are going completely uncelebrated. Your culture can change that and can be changed by a new focus on goodness and progress. In fact, with all that negative noise out there, your work culture can be infused by a sense of flourishing. People can be sharing ideas and swapping stories of wonderful, ingenious solutions around the water cooler again. With instant access to good news, employees can stay on their feet and take turns being the one who makes opportunity at setback. People who use the Goodness Exchange every day have a spring in their step. They radiate joy and confidence and creativity because they know a far more complete picture of what's going on in the world. If you'd like to chat about infusing the culture where you work with a tone of celebration of goodness and innovation and progress, let's hop on a Zoom. You can introduce us to your HR director or your chief of culture. You know, if used consistently, our content can give companies a way to turn something aspirational like positivity into a concrete way of being. Thanks. Talk to us at the Goodness Exchange about change and flourishing where you work. Hello. So we're back. We're back with Borhan Yassin. And I, I would like to just give you a little bit about Borhan's background. He's a veteran of the tech industry and more recently, the, the conservation industry. So Borhan brings this huge understanding of all the possibilities in technology to the whole conservation arena. And this is what I was really interested in, in us talking about, because the ordinary person, which I consider myself one, we don't understand the scope of what's possible with technology. And then, then marry it to conservation, which is a place where m- most of our hearts do lie. We you know, we want to see a world that's full of diversity and, and beauty for our grandchildren and stuff. But take us down a little walk. Take us off some of these great places that you've started to use this. So let's start with the whale, the way you've used it in with whales in Ireland. And I think where's the other place? Fill us in. Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, you know, bioacoustics is a definitely a science that's been in use for many, many, many years. So it's it's not a new science, but the application of Technology and bioacoustics is relatively relatively new. So we started with a couple of projects, funny enough, marine projects, which is not something that are uh, necessarily is directly aligned with our expertise as sort of terrestrial, you know, science-based organization. But um, it was an interesting application of technology and AI. So we started out with a project with uh, NOAA. It was actually collaboration with Google as well in the Vancouver Bay in Canada, where we had all these sort of underwater microphones that were deployed in Vancouver Bay, several of them. And they were collecting data and streaming this data directly to the the cloud, to the Rainforest Connection Cloud. And we were essentially using it to detect humpback whales and orcas and all sorts of marine species that would be sort of visiting, visiting that bay. And it was an important way for scientists and researchers to understand sort of what the migration patterns look like and all these wonderful things. So that was one of the first projects we've done. Um, Another marine project that comes into mind is a project that we did in Ireland, off the coast of Ireland, with a really cool, fun nonprofit organization that actually has an app on their phone, on, you know, on your phone that you can download. And it was primarily used for alerting ships 
for any presence of orca pods or presence of whales so they can divert the ships away from these whales. I think the number one, the number one killer for whales and orcas is essentially ships going through pods and things, things of that nature. So we created an AI model that is able to detect these species in real time. And that allowed that organization to connect through these detections and could send a signal right away to these ships and try to divert the ships away from the, from the pods that are in the middle of the, the ocean. So there's a couple of, couple of things that we've done there on the marine side, but we've done so many amazing things on the terrestrial side on, you know, on, on the, with rainforest where we feel like, Go for it. like <laughs> that we kind of belong. So yeah, to date, our organization has done projects in over 35 countries around the world. We've actually also, as a result of all these projects that we've done, we've built an entire science team that was very much interested in answering scientific questions on things that are going on in the forest and things that are happening around the world to try to help, you know, sort of advance cons- conservation forward. So along the, and sort of in that, during that journey, we essentially said, okay, that, how do we, you know, how, what do we do there to try to influence and affect as many people as possible? All these scientists and all these researchers that are interested in doing good work, but they may not have the resources or they may not have the capability to go in to, to, to places like the way we do. Then we thought, okay, well, maybe we can supplement them with the right technology that allows them to do that. And that's when we started working on a platform that allow a software platform that allows us to, you know, a, a allows people, especially researchers and scientists, but primarily students that are doing their PhDs and things of that nature, to, to really use the power of AI in combination with sound to try to come up with a lot of conservation outcomes as a result of it. So we created this entire platform that is now, to date, has become very popular that essentially enables all these people to come in and analyze their sound and be able to discover all these wonderful things in it. And that's sort of been a very heavy focus of ours to try to progress that forward so we can bridge that gap between the people on the ground and the researchers and the scientists that are sitting in the, on their desks doing the research and doing the work. You have a story that comes to mind of, of something that came your way that's come of this? Yeah, definitely. So I think maybe what makes more sense, what makes sense too, is to kind of tell your audience and your viewers a little bit about how important animals are to the health, to the right. vitality of the forest. And I'll give you one example, which is something that I've personally learned when I was on the ground in Costa Rica in the Osa Peninsula, which is the Osa Peninsula holds 5% of the world's biodiversity. It's one of the most biodiverse places in the world. And there's a monkey species there called the spider monkey. It's a highly endangered, critically endangered species. So there's a there's an organization on the ground called Osa Conservation, wonderful people. They're really, they're doing, they're fighting off illegal loggers, but they're also doing any, everything they can to try to protect that particular species of monkey because it's so vital. And when I started learning more about it, I discovered how wonderful and how amazing that connection between a forest and a, a, a species or an animal is. For if you take the spider monkey, the one that we we're just talking about, so the spider monkeys are known to eat somewhere around 100 to 110 different species of fruits. And they basically, by eating and sort of dropping the seeds on the ground, they're enabling, you know, essentially 
the forest to prosper and enabling new species of, of fruits and new trees to come up in the forest, right? The droppings that they, that they put on the ground, for example, through, you know, defecating or through eating and all those kind of things, it's a vital component to wild peccaries, which are basically like wild, wild hogs, right? That it's a primary food source for peccaries. And that's the way they survive. So they're dependent on the spider monkeys dropping food. So they're eating. And then the peccaries are a primary source for pumas and jaguars, who are notoriously bad hunters. And they like to go after animals that go in herds. So imagine this like amazing relationship between all these animals and all these species and how, they import, how important they are to the forest. And if any of those break or disappear, it basically breaks the entire chain. And this is why protecting biodiversity is so important, right? And especially as we live, as we're, you know, every, the whole world is talking about climate change and, and the rise of temperatures and so on. Biodiversity is a way to make forests more better at doing the, the job that they need to do. Forests are literally the best technology that we have at absorbing carbon. There's nothing else that's better at absorbing carbon from the atmosphere than forests are, than trees and soil and forests in general, right? Any man-made technology right now that absorbs carbon, anything like that is far more expensive and far less superior than forests are. And in order to make these this natural technology better, you need to preserve its biodiversity. So this relationship and how important forest is and how important biodiversity is it's really our only fighting chance towards doing anything about climate change, right? Okay, so this is great. I'm so glad you you took this conversation here because I want to share with folks that biodiversity has really come to the forefront as a part of the whole mitigation plan for climate change. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about COP15 and even first start with what COP15 is? We hear all of us ordinary people hear this referred to in the news, but I'm not sure we can appreciate um, the magnitude of that and then the decisions that come from it. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So I don't claim to be experts on COP, but you know, I I know a few things, but yeah. It stands for, first, what does it stand for? I'm not sure. Well, we can look I it don't up. Know. I don't know. Yeah, it's some some okay. some some term. But uh, yeah, I'm going to have, I'm gonna have our producer look it up. Okay, and and then she'll put it in the in the chat for us. Sounds good. Yeah, so COP15 or primary, or mostly all the COPs. So you may have heard of COP26 or COP27 or COP15. Mm-hmm. You know those kind of things. But COP15 or any COPs usually are primarily where. Go- governmental bodies come together and try to do affect some sort of a policy change, right? The work that we do, the work that organization that lots of nonprofit organizations on the ground do, they they are pretty much they're very localized, and we try as much as we can to prevent the issue on and sort of an immediate way, right? But policies are important to be able to affect change globally or to be able to make governments sort of mandate a change to happen, which is really important. So one of the primary outcomes of COP15 that we're really excited about was that they really hammered down on how important biodiversity is and how important it is to create ways by which governments could fund and make commitments. They made lots of commitments to improve biodiversity and being able to put it at the sort of forefront of the fight against climate change. So I think 
COP15 was an important step in sort of being able to put something that normally hasn't been talked about a lot, being able to put it in the forefront of the fight against climate change. And that's what primarily COP15 was for. So just to make sure I've got this right. So when we talk about biodiversity and we talk about climate change mitigation, we're do what we're doing is from your explanation of how it's a great chain. And if one link, one link breaks, the whole system is broken. If we think about biodiversity in that way, we're, what we're doing is, you know, biodiversity makes sure there are enough plants, there are enough animals, that all the parts of the chain are there. There are enough trees, seeds being dropped here and there to keep the new ones growing when the old ones die, blah, blah, blah. So really, if we focus on biodiversity as a major part of climate change mitigation, what we're doing is we're probably fixing a million other problems that come be- come That's right. beneath it, right? Yeah, totally. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, so think about, I'm sure we hear a lot about carbon, right? About carbon, carbon credit or being carbon neutral or reducing your carbon footprint and all those kind of things, right? Now, usually you can reduce your carbon footprint, but you can never make it zero. You're always going to produce some level of carbon emission by just you doing the basic things, right? Now, if if you take that to massive companies and big organizations, they have some sort of a carbon footprint. So oftentimes what they do is they offset that carbon using a mechanism called carbon credits, right? Where they essentially buy a almost like currency, carbon credit, that is intended to protect a forest somewhere in, in the Amazon, for example. And by invert virtue of that, they offset the credit, they offset the emissions that they're releasing every single year. And that's how sort of they they become carbon neutral. Now, this whole carbon credit mechanism or the mechanism of being able to actually sequester carbon from the atmosphere and store carbon and so on, that 95% of that is done by forests and by trees, you know, storing carbon, you know, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, right? And the ability to make these natural carbon sinks, these forests, make them more effective at the work that they do is by maintaining their biodiversity and improving their biodiversity, right? So it's essentially, it's injecting them with this amazing capability at becoming better at becoming a natural carbon sink. That's why biodiversity is so important because it's a critical component in offsetting all of our carbon emissions in the world. Because that's there, there's no other way to do it at the moment. All the other ways are more expensive, less effective, et cetera, et cetera. So when we focus on illegal logging, that is definitely something that needs to be focused on. That's a, a problem. Or when we focus on protecting large predators, pumas, for example, that's a yeah. problem. Apex predators in the environment have to be maintained to make the whole chain work. Like if we take apart problem by problem, we can do that. And certainly we need to do that. But if we just put biodiversity at the top, at the top of our agenda, that automatically takes in all those other problems and we can get everybody moving in the same direction. That's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. Because think of a biodiversity as like this one encompassing, because in order for an area to be a health of a healthy biodiverse area, you have to have trees protected. You have to have the animals. So it's kind of, you're totally right. It's kind of like this all encompassing 
sort of way of ensuring that these forests and these ecosystems are prospering. And then to take you to get back to the technology and AI and and the tech solutions that we're coming up with to to protect biodiversity, that, you know we can still use tech or we will use tech or you are using tech to to prevent illegal loggings to track apex species and monitor their health in an environment. Blah blah blah. But it's a lot easier to move the ship of public concern or governmental commitments. If you can point everything back to one one overarching theme, right? Yeah. Nope, you can't be doing that, government, because you'll you're wrecking the biodiversity plan over here. Is, exactly. is that sort of is that sort of part of the yeah. equation too? To hold keep everybody accountable, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely, and it goes into everything. Like for example, I think you know if, if there's anything that we should kind of talk to to folks about is sort of how biodiversity and how maintaining a biodiverse place is important. Take, for example, reforestation projects, right? So you hear a lot about tree planting and we're planting trees and we're adding trees and all of that. Well, there's some studies, for example, that that suggested in areas where some trees were planted, it actually had a negative effect, not a positive effect. Why? Because biodiversity is important. So biodiversity comes in is an important factor to ensuring that your reforestation project is heading in the right direction, for example, right? Because there's a special combination that you have to hit in order for the animals to come back, in order for the area to prosper, and et cetera. It's not just about planting a bunch of pine trees and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're good to go. It's a lot more sophisticated than that. And definitely biodiversity is that sort of overarching aspect of it. Yeah, and I, I love the way that the more the public knows about the kind of nuances that you're talking about, the more we can hold people accountable. Let's just pick on the mining or logging industry. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I don't need to pick on people. These are you know important jobs in certain areas. But when you go to reclaim an area, let's say in eastern Kentucky, that's had strip mining for 100 years, it's not enough, right, to just go in there and plant a whole bunch of one species of pines and say... Right. Just exactly. done, right? Like, yeah. like this, the, your the things that you're bringing to the forefront, the rainforest connection is bringing to the forefront by the things that you're able, the data you're able to collect will help us monitor whether people are actually doing the work of re- real, truly restoring places or the, just yeah. checking a box, right? Exactly. And the other way I like to think about it as well is that we're also taking a snapshot of Earth that's not going to exist again, right? Like the planet that's in front of us right now, it's not going to be the same tomorrow. It's not going to be the same a year from now. And most certainly biodiversity is also like that, right? As our world changes in front of us, as the climate change, no matter what kind of mitigations that we do, we're definitely, we're moving from where we are today and the world is changing right in front of us. And I think for us, that's an important aspect too, because if you look at what we've done so far today, on that front, I think we're closing in on somewhere around 100 million one-minute recordings that have been collected to date. That's somewhere mm-hmm. somewhere around 170 plus years of audio, of continuous audio. By far the largest collection ever in history. And I really like to think about it as almost like a museum of data, of audio data that really is a snapshot of Earth, of these places where we're collecting this data, that years from now could become so much more valuable than we think it is now. We may not know exactly how important it is, 
we may end up discovering that 10 years from now, that data was so vital that we really maintained this history of it. So we feel a sense of need and sort of a duty to do that as well, in addition to discovering all these things that we can and the current data that we're collecting, but also to take that snapshot to sort of see what people and folks would do with it years from now, you know? Well, so tell me, I think that something I've really noticed as I talk to innovators on this podcast frequently is the collaborations that are popping up, the partnerships that cross over the intersection. Tell me about some interesting intersections of the Rainforest Connections work that have made new things possible. Yeah, I think we've been lucky to, you know, we've been lucky to be in sort of the the kind of the forefront of technology and conservation. And that allowed us to form some really great partnerships with lots of organizations, lots of amazing organizations around the world. And, you know, whether it's IUCN or WWF or the Humboldt Institute. World Wildlife Forum. Yeah. World, I'm just translating some of those. World Wildlife Fund. Yeah. Yeah. The, many of these great organizations that we've done either projects with or collaborated on, but also we've been humbled sort of by all these amazing super massive large corporations that actually have came into us and said, hey, we'd love to help. Whether it's Google, Google has been at the forefront of helping us with, you know, with grants, with technology. We've worked hand in hand with their teams on different things. It's been kind of humbling to see that as well, where you see corporations that do care and they want to make a difference. And that that's also been been very helpful to us. So yeah, we partnerships are very important. Our focus is very much on the ground because we're not just a technology organization. We're also a field organization. So our team is deployed on the ground. They go do the installations. They camp and spend time with the with the local conservation organizations. And to see how genuine and amazing these people are and how much they care about protecting their land, it's it really makes you wake up every single day and wanting to do more and more. I think those are by far been the biggest sort of partnerships that we've had that have been eye-opening to us that sort of gave us this this hope that, uh, you know, hopefully that we can make a difference. Now, I, you saw me look over just a minute ago. I was checking a little list. We, by the time this episode airs, there will be an episode that we've recorded with an Andrew Winston. He and Paul Pullman, Paul Pullman's the was the CEO of Unilever, which some people might know is one of the most gigantic corporations in the world. And they've written an amazing book called Net Positive, which I interviewed Andrew about, recommended by Jane Goodall. So if Jane Goodall is walking around saying, read this book, <laughs> they must be onto something. But you triggered my, my, my thoughts about that when you were saying how surprised you were about from the, the interests of big business and the corporate world. I guess I want to get your take on that too, as you've seen this, things transpire over the years. I really think there's a gratitude economy coming. There's a there's an economy where just getting our attention will is going in our rear view mirror. Anybody who's just shouting loud enough at us to get us to buy their products or what have you. I think that in, in the way I look at this gratitude economy coming is that folks are going to be spending their money with companies that make them feel grateful, the companies that are trying to do good business and make the world a better place. And I think the support of organizations like yours is something that we should all look for. You know, if we have a choice of two companies to to spend our, our money with, how does this look from your point of view? Like, what can they, give me some 
cues that are there little things in your personal life that you are a consumer that you do because that are now informed by all the things you've learned about the world of conservation? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I think you hit on a great point, which is that really all these organ, all these companies, all these corporates around the world are only made possible because of the consumers, right? The consumer is essentially any company without a consumption is no company, right? If nobody, if everybody stops buying iPhones tomorrow, Apple would cease to exist very, very quickly, even though they have billions of dollars in cash and their, sa- and their savings, you know. But that's, it's an interesting point because consumers are the ones who sort of dictate a lot the behavior of these companies. So consumer awareness is very important. And certainly as I've gotten into the field of conservation, prior to that, I was very heavily focused on starting my own companies and being part of startups and fundraising and, you know, all these kind of things. And um, although conservation was always something I wanted to do, I never saw myself making it a career. And I think when I started focusing on it more and more six years ago, fast forward to today, it really opened my eyes on sort of being able to learn more. I think that's important. I used to buy things off the shelf that I would know very little about. I just read the label that said how many calories it had and, you know, so those kind of things. But I really didn't know what the tactics that this company used or the way they sourced their raw materials or anything like that. I think that that's really important. And I think the consumers can force more transparency for companies so they could start really talking about how they're sourcing material, how they're going about it, how they're offsetting and all those kind of things. And I think that would lead us to a much, much better place if we start forcing these companies to come in and be more transparent about how they're getting that product into our heads. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, that interview with Andrew, I'm not sure what what episode number it'll be, but we will link to it in the article that surrounds this podcast interview. I remember finishing that interview and feeling a lot of hope. These people are at the top of the industrial global economy, and they know that it's going to be important for everyone to start worrying about giving more than they take. Yeah. No, definitely. So, I, think, I think it's a absolutely. No, I think it's, a, yeah. it's an important thing, and it's important for the people that are spearheading these large corporations to see, for whatever reason they have in their head about it, whether it's because they see that if they don't go go through with that, it's it, it would lead to less demand or whatever the case may be. I think no, no matter what their intentions are, no matter what it is, at the end of the day, as long as it's having a net positive change to the world, I think that that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me about how the science of acoustics is being informed by AI. Like, do you have an example of that? I don't, I, oh, I think that's yeah. also a topic that feels pretty far away from the ordinary person. Yeah, definitely. So think about it from a standpoint, uh, but imagine you have been collecting receipts for the last 20 years, you know, receipts for all of your expenses for the last 20 years. And you put these in, you lock them in a bunch of drawers that are sitting there in your room. And then now you decide all of a sudden one day that you want to organize all these receipts and put them by vendor and by price and by all these kind of things. Now, imagine the amount of time that it would take you to do all of that. 20 years worth of receipts, every day you're spending stuff. Imagine how much time it it takes you to do that. Imagine now a machine that could do all of that for you in a matter of seconds, right? 
the amount of time that you would have invested in the manual way versus the amount of time that you would have invested in just having a machine do it in a couple of seconds is vastly, you know, different, right? So that's what AI brings to acoustics. Acoustics is in the, in is the methodology of recording a large amount of data, a massive amount of receipts, right? And before AI, a person had to sit there and listen to every single one of those audio clips and say, oh, this is this animal, this is that animal, this is so on and so on. Imagine the amount of work that it takes versus an AI model is a model that's been trained over a hundred thousand examples to detect very specific sound signatures, sometimes much better than a human would do because it's really trained to do that. So it takes analysis of the data from a matter of months and years sometimes. Sometimes people spend the majority of their PhD just analyzing and studying data to a matter of minutes and seconds. And I think that that is a massive important use of AIs to be able to process huge amounts of data in a very, very quick, quick manner. And that's, that's sort of where we focus a lot of our efforts on. Yeah, that that's very exciting to me. Like just, you're just, you know, you're just able in the short time that we have today to hit the mountaintops for us on this. Tell me, I've got three final questions. First, tell me where people can understand the valleys. Where, where can people learn all about the rainforest connection, possibly donate, possibly help? What What's going on with that? What Where should people go next? Yeah, I mean, you could find us online if you go to rfcx.org or just type in rainforest connection in Google and you'll be able to find us. But I, I also encourage you to not just not just look at us, but look at all these amazing organizations around the world that are trying to do the same thing. We'd love your your donation, of course, because it will go directly to programs on the ground. But I think if you find other organizations out there that are more enticing or more in sort of the area where you want to do protection or maybe locally in your area, I'd encourage you to, to donate to them as well. But yeah, you can learn more about us. I mean, like I said, if you type in Rainforest Connection in Google or go to rfcx.org. So and I love that point that you were just making there, because that is something that almost everyone I interviewed, Ian Kerr, he is the uh, this fascinating whale researcher who's the first to use drones to study whales. It, he's an amazing guy. I should introduce you. Awesome. And he, you know, the first thing he said was just do when I asked him the same question, just do what you can do, possibly locally, right where you're at. If we all just did that, things would get amazingly better almost overnight because we are so powerful in our individual numbers. Absolutely. Locally. Definitely. Yeah, I, I love that. Definitely. Okay. So what do you really wish people knew? Like you've come to this adventure after having spent many, many years in just general tech. And now you've, your mind's probably been blown by all the comp- the conservation applications of, the, of your zone of genius that you brought to this with your technology, your head for technology. So what do you really wish people knew? What has raised your eyebrows? What do you really wish we knew? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I can speak for myself and I, I'm sure a lot of people relate to it. I think it's a, it's it was very important to me to understand the magnitude of the problem that we have, how devastating and what, what we're doing to the world in general. And the fact that, although some may, may think that that's a cycle, but it certainly is something that we're, what we're doing today is definitely going to affect, it seems to have been affecting us directly but most certainly going to affect the future generations that are coming. So 
being able to understand the magnitude of climate change and the magnitude of what's happening around the world and how now we're seeing climate changes everywhere and to the extreme cases, I think being able to see that and sort of connecting that, connecting the dots to to make to take that back to sort of why we're why did all of this is happening, I think that was very very important. So I encourage a lot of people to read more about it and to understand why we are where we are today and why is is the climate changing and why that's so important, right? And there's so many examples of species that are going extinct or they're migrating to different. Uh, elevations, for example, because of the climate is changing. So I think that that was the first one. The second piece of it is to truly understand what it would take to save or to make a huge difference, to reverse what's happening. And I think for me, as I looked into more of how amazing Mother Nature is and how amazing the world that we have is and how resilient it is at repairing itself, it really gave me a sort of a new a glimpse of hope on, you know, being able to actually do something positive. And I think for me, even though I'm a technologist at heart, I'm somebody who probably favors technology over everything else. In this instance, I favor protecting the natural world because I think that that's the only ju- the only way that we can make a difference. So I'm not in the business of making, I'm not in the, in the world of making technology be at the forefront of saving humanity. I'm in the business of making technology as a way to protect the natural resources that I think will save humanity. So I think that that's, it's important for people to understand that. It's important to see that. And I wish I had the statistics memorized because I would have blurted them right out. But the amazing difference between how effective and how wonderful forests are and the natural world is at being a carbon sink compared to any technology that we have today, the best technologies that we have today is unbelievable. So that's why I think for my, me and my team, our life's work is going to be about that, about trying to preserve this natural carbon sink that, that, that is the best, best chance we, best fighting chance that we have right now. So that's lovely. Okay, so with that in mind, what has to happen next? Like, I'm sure every day you get up and you wish you were here. You're here, but you you know you could have so much more impact if you were here. Like, what has to happen next for you guys to be able to really use what you know is possible? You know, I think what needs to happen next is there needs to be a global, a sort of a global map that essentially could forecast what biodiversity health looks like in every part of the world. And I think that that is an almost an impossible task, but I think it's a task that we and partners of ours are capable of doing. I think if we get to a place where we're able to to essentially forecast what biodiversity health looks like in every part of the world, I think we could raise awareness, but also hold governments accountable on actually doing something about it. So I think that that's, to us, that's sort of the next frontier and the next challenge that we want to attack is instead of just focusing on the areas that we're actually collecting data from or our science team is doing work in, can we use all this knowledge and all this vast amount of data that we've built up to be able to predict what biodiversity health looks like in the whole world? And that is going to be essential to driving driving to moving the needle forward and to be able to drive policy changes and drive ac- 
corporations and drive governments to actually do something about it. So that's our next challenge. And anyone that is hopefully wanting to support us in that, anyone that has any great ideas on that, any scientist or researcher or somebody who who has something that can contribute to that, I'd love to talk to them and I'd love to to hear from them. So that's, I think, that's, I think is going to be the most important thing that we would do that would give us a much better chance in the, at, at fighting climate change. Well, I'm going to encourage people to do just that. I'm sure that if you, if you know someone, if you have connections, for instance, the first thing I'm going to do when I get done with this podcast is introduce you to Elspeth Jones. Have you heard of this this group of 282 lawyers in the world that are that have one client, the planet Earth? I've not heard that, of that, but that's, that's, that's yes. That's, it's an incredible. It's our episode 117 just a few okay. weeks ago that published, but I'm going to introduce you to Elspeth. She tells an amazing story in that podcast interview of a small island in the South Pacific winning a giant battle that will affect the future for all island nations against the government of Australia. And this is going to set policy going forward. And I think that's what you're talking about. I think that you're, that the impression I'm getting from what you're saying is that if we can use all this data that you're collecting to, to move governments to do and corporations to force them to do the right thing for our shared future, then everything that you're collecting and everything you're doing is driving a shared future for us all that's going to be a lot better than if we just keep our heads in the sand. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Okay. Well, I'm going to introduce you to Elspeth Jones and and, and uh, Client good. Earth <laughs> and anybody else who wants to help Borhan Yassin drive change in the future using sound and anything else they are dreaming of in the way of technology, I'm sure that you will love those connections. So Morgan, thank you so much for this lovely chat. I can't tell you how important it is for us to keep following the, the Rainforest Connection because it's so much a part of the roots of the Goodness Exchange. I do a lot of public speaking myself, and I refer to the Rainforest Connection in almost every talk I give because I, I think it's a quintessential, very short story. Seven years? Yeah. You've gone from Topher climbing all by himself up in the middle of rainforest trees and putting somebody's old cell phone up there to everything that you and I have just talked about in the last hour. That is how change can happen when we've got people like you at the helm. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lavita. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, I hope that you will remember us at the Goodness Exchange and join us there daily to get your, you know, an instant dose of good news. The the Goodness Exchange is not doing puppies in mailboxes stories. We're covering newsworthy signs of progress that we all should be hearing about. We're not hearing nearly enough about. We're going to keep on shining a light on people like the Goodness Exchange. I hope these connections to goodness and progress that Borhan and I have shared with you will carry you through your week and you'll start finding all the joy and wonder that we've been talking about. Thanks.